This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Welcome to this episode of History 605, the podcast about South Dakota history and the history of the Great Plains. Today, we have Lori Ann Wallum and Molly Rosen. Lori Ann is a professor of history at Minnesota State University in Mankato. Molly Rosen is associate professor of history at the University of South Dakota. And together, they have edited this book, Equality at the Ballot Box, Votes for Women on the Northern Great Plains. It was published by the South Dakota Historical Society Press in 2019. Hello, Lori and Ann. Well, hello. Hi. The book is an anthology uh, worked by scholars looking at the region's efforts to push women's suffrage and related bills in the four states of North and South Dakota, Montana, and Wyoming. And it's kind of, it's an interesting take on how uh, the region worked for suffrage. Um, And then also the uh, impact of what ultimately became the 19th Amendment and how that was ratified. So given the fact that it comes in stages, the book is a kind of an interesting look at uh, these four different states and all of their path toward women's suffrage in one way, shape, or form. Um, I'm wondering, Molly or, or Lori, whoever wants to take the question, um, in your introduction, uh, the book opens up as a part of the country is being settled after the Civil War. And I'm wondering if you can kind of help set the scene for the audience for us. Uh, how did voting laws work in the United States at the time? given that the 14th and 15th Amendment had just been ratified and so forth. What was the voting climate? Well, as you probably know, Ben, this is Molly talking, mm-hmm. uh, as you probably know, you know, the, this, each state you know, was in charge of its own laws in terms of voting and who qualified as a voter. So there was quite diversity across um, the country. Yeah, I mean, the territories made the decisions, too, in terms of who who um, constituted a qualified qualified voter. But, you know, the story really is before the, the um, 14th and 15th Amendments, and mm-hmm. the 14th and 15th Amendments play a role in terms of shaping what's happening on the Northern Great Plains, in terms of uh, thinking about um, who is a qualified, who is a qualified voter. And, of course, during this time period in the region, there are relatively few non-Indigenous people who reside mm-hmm. in what today would be the states of North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, and, and Montana. And actually, um, Jennifer Helton's article on what Wyoming being the first territory and then later the first state to pass suffrage really sets the stage, and, you know, she argues that the territory of Wyoming was part of the radical Republican vision of the West, and and that women winning the vote was really grew out of the debates around equality, citizenship, and suffrage, Mm -hmm. Um, and looks at how 13th and the 15th Amendment were sort of tried out in some of the territorial legislation for Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, very radical Republicans wanting uh, to bring Wyoming in as a, as a free state and to use it to ensure freedom in the West. Right. I think, though, too, even before that, in 1867, um, Congress passed a law 
um, requiring territories to um, ensure that African-American men could vote. And so that was something that was implemented before the, the, the 15th Amendment or before the 14th Amendment was ratified, mm-hmm. too. And one of the things that is kind of interesting, this didn't apply to Wyoming because at the time Wyoming was part of Dakota Territory, but Dakota Territory in 1867 changed the law so that African-American men could vote, whereas there was considerable pushback in Montana, and there was a concerted effort to try to prevent African-American men from from voting in Montana. And so there were different, there were different outcomes, and mm-hmm. part of that, I think, is connected with who settled um, in terms of white settlers in these in these regions, um, there were relatively few people from former Confederate states or former slave states, for that matter, who settled in the Dakotas, as an example. Right. So it strikes me that looking through a lot of this, and we'll come back to Wyoming in a second, but it's certainly your point is well taken about the who settles it, um, whether they're German immigrants from Western, what is today Western Germany, that that might immigrate to various places in the in Dakota Territory, or or Civil War veterans. That that kind of climate uh, is really set by who shows up and then who votes in these elections and so forth. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things, I mean, there's a lot of material that didn't really end up in the book in terms mm-hmm. of research that Molly and I did in conjunction with the. The book and the elections of 1914 that took place on women's suffrage in Montana, North Dakota, and South Dakota highlight that mm-hmm. um, quite significantly. Mm-hmm. And there's a strong correlation um, in those states. Some of my research has been on Norwegian immigrants, um, but where Norwegian immigrants and their children, Norwegian Americans, have large numbers. Um, there is a high level of support for women's suffrage. And there are other reasons for that, too. Norwegians tended to support temperance and prohibition, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, but in German-Russian communities uh, in particular, there is very, very little support for, um, for women's suffrage. And because there were elections and we have the county data, we can make those kinds of correlations. Okay. So... Talk about Wyoming then a little bit. It's first in the nation for for women's suffrage. Um, what's in the climate there that allows it to get first in the territory and then continue on into the statehood? Well, um, Ulysses Grant, um, president, mm-hmm. uh, appointed John Allen Campbell the territorial governor, and he was a Republican and a Civil War veteran. Okay. And you know, Campbell had worked in Virginia after the Civil War to ensure, oh. you know, that black men could vote and mm-hmm. investigated activities of the KKK. However, it's sort of interesting in Wyoming, Democrats won every seat in their first legislature. Oh. So um, it's a it's a Democrat-dominated legislature. Uh, and so there have been a lot of questions about, you know, why Democrats would vote woman suffrage in. And... Jennifer Helton, in her article, argues that really it was a part of this larger reform movement. Um, The legislature also passed um, equal pay for equal work in teaching, um, gave married women full rights over their property and business and income, Mm -hmm. including the ability to make a will, 
and okay. gave uh, passed divorce law giving women rights to property. So she really argues that you know um, this was a part of that trajectory in terms of reforming the you know reforming uh, women working to reform the constitution generally and and using Wyoming to 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 start the trend so to speak. I see. I mean, she, she paints a variety of characters and how they might intersect with why they individually voted for it. William Bright, who was a Southern Democrat who introduced uh, the bill, um, his wife was probably a suffragist, mm-hmm. um, she speculates. Um, but he also seemed to want whites to keep the power in the state. And so he thought, um, you know, empowering white women to vote would help them do that. Okay. Well, that's kind of interesting, too, then across the region. What are the political interests that are opposed to suffrage? We talked about the temperance movements and so forth. And I wonder, for, for background for our listeners, can you explain fellow travelers that uh, prohibition or temperance along with suffrage uh, were? And then who might that bring out to oppose suffrage? Um, by by some, not by, by everyone, that if women gained the right to vote, that um, prohibition would, in fact, become a reality. Mm-hmm. And um, in part, the, the WCTU um, was active, the, women, the um, Women's Christian Temperance Union was actively involved in the region. And um, women, many women did speak out um, on the evils of alcohol, and they supported restricting access to alcohol or, or outright prohibiting alcohol in some kind of way. And so there was, there was a fear on the part of some that if women um, gained the right to vote, that in fact prohibition would become a reality. And so sometimes it's kind of easy to pit the, the um, pro-alcohol, if you will, mm-hmm. faction versus the anti-alcohol faction. It's maybe a little bit more um, complicated than that. And, you know, a case in point, uh, North Dakota, which came in as a dry state, um, so prohibition in theory should have been off the table, right. didn't enact woman suffrage. And, and Barb Handy Marcello points out how Alexander um, McKenzie was able to manipulate a kind of early suffrage debates and kind of put off um, dealing with, with woman suffrage. Um, but in, in Wyoming, where women had the right to vote um, in, in the territory since 1869 and upon statehood, um, prohibition was not enacted. So women had the right to vote, and yet prohibition did not follow. Mm-hmm. However, in Montana, where woman suffrage passed in um, that 1914 election, the next election in 1916, prohibition went into effect. And there, again, there is an extremely strong correlation. The counties that supported um, women's suffrage were also um, most likely to support um, prohibition also. And then South Dakota is a little more complicated because mm-hmm. you need a scorecard to keep track <laughs> of the prohibition situation or temperance. Is it local option? Is, is it um, statewide? Is there nothing? Is there a resubmission bill? you know, right. in the legislature. It's it's a comp- more complicated situation in South Dakota. Well, and one of the interesting things about South Dakota, and it, it, I would agree with Lori that this correlation between, you know, prohibition and whether or not women are going to support it is, is key 
all across the Northern Plains. Um, but, it, you know, there was this fear, right? And in South Dakota, we had three successive um, campaigns for women to win the vote in four, 1914, 1916, and 1918, when, of course, um, um, suffragists were successful and South Dakota mm-hmm. um, women won the right to vote. But in 1916, in that referendum, voters were to decide on both women's suffrage and prohibition. And voters, so male voters at the time, voted in prohibition and Mm. voted down suffrage. So it definitely is very, very complicated in the state of South Dakota. Sort of there was enough support to vote in prohibition without women. So... um, you know, it, it sort of belies the, the, the standard narrative that men, you know, that women were would be the ones to bring in prohibition. And I know even in some of the German, German-Russian counties in South Dakota for the 1918 campaign, um, we had some out-of-state campaigners, campaigners who were kind of hired by the South Dakota Suffrage Organization from the national organization right. touring these German counties and some of them wrote back saying you know the germans in this county are saying you know women already got prohibition what what more do they want i mean you know and oh, that, was yeah. the, that was in the german counties uh-huh. um so they sort of you can see there is that correlation they definitely believed i mean and, and particularly the german german russian dominated counties you know did believe that women were going to vote in prohibition and because Alcohol was a part of, you know, an alcohol brewing was a part of their culture. Right. You know, there were many reasons why German communities felt this way. Uh, but the fact that Prohibition supporters were able to get it passed without women suggests something, you know, more complicated going, going on. on. Yeah. And one of the things we really need to do in suffrage scholarship is, is figure out more about the immigrant community votes, more mm-hmm. distinctions between German-Russians versus German versus the Czech population versus the Norwegian population. I think that that area, you know, is just ripe for research for the Northern Plains, and our collection sort of suggests those themes and kind of gets into that and opens mm-hmm. it up. But there's much more to be done to understand how these issues played out. Right. And I'll maybe just interject that the national organizations, um, depending on the time period, either two or one, um, made made a miscalculation when addressing the issue of prohibition, um, which is really an issue of prohibition by the time we're talking about about statehood for uh, Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming, that they made this miscalculation in terms of wanting to separate suffrage and prohibition. And really in this region, again, Wyoming might be a little bit of an outlier, but Wyoming already had um, women's suffrage. It, it, it can't work. It doesn't work in the region. And part of the, the reason why is because a lot of the key leaders within the women's suffrage movement are also key leaders in the WCTU. Right. And so that overlap is going to be persistent and consistent. And when they try to, to separate or force the, the state organizations to separate the two, it's not successful. And in fact, it, it might have been more successful, um, especially early on, to argue in favor of prohibition and women's suffrage, perhaps they would have been a little more successful. 
Well, it sounds like the feedback they got from that particular visit uh, was that it was prohibition was seen as such a women's issue that that was the only issue that women cared about. And once that was done, there there's no need for that. So I, that's an interesting thing that kind of, at least from that person's perspective, whoever said that. And if that was wide enough, yeah. Well, yeah, I mean. Vote for it, and then this is over with, and then both issues are kind of taken care of. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I would agree with Lori, and I think, Lori, would you agree that, I mean, one of the things that we thought distinguished the Northern Great Plains was this commitment to the WCTU and this combination of, of, of organizations that women were involved in mm -hmm. and the WCTU actually being an important training ground and the Northern Plains campaigns themselves being important training ground for suffragists that would go on to help in other states. And I would agree with Lori that there was sort of a miscalculation, and I think people like Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Cady Stanton were very you know, anti-immigrant in their sentiment mm -hmm. when I think suffragists here on the Northern Plains actually thought even those immigrant groups that might start out as anti-woman suffrage could be convinced. They grew, you know, they knew these communities, they interacted with them, they lived next to them. Mm -hmm. They felt that you know, they could be convinced in some cases. So our suffragists here on the Northern Plains actually thought there was much more opportunity there, whereas early on from from some earlier campaigns, I'm not sure which ones off the top of my head, but some, from some earlier campaigns and then what happened in 1890, the national leaders really did, you know, just take an anti-sort of immigrant turn. One of the things that, shifting gears here a little bit, one of the things I thought was compelling in your, in your introduction, you bring this out, is the is the voting that does occur prior to uh, universal suffrage and it, for school elections and for education issues. And I'm wondering, that, that comes up in several articles in the, in the book. I'm wondering if you can kind of walk through how that may have changed people's minds over time to, to both men and women about women's suffrage. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> Ruth Page Jones has really an amazing... Um, essay on school suffrage. And school suffrage is often overlooked by suffrage scholars because it's considered to be sort of a lesser um, form of suffrage, if you will. Um, and Ruth, Ruth argues that this was crucially important in terms of laying the foundation for demonstrating that um, women could and would be engaged um, in the electoral process. Mm -hmm. And um, it, in, in the region, and again, Wyoming, it's not applicable because women have full suffrage rights there. But in Montana, um, Dakota Territory, and then later North Dakota and South Dakota, um, there, there were some slight differences in terms of, of um, the extent to which women had the right to vote in school elections. That changed in Dakota Territory. It's actually quite confusing, uh -huh. just, um, just like and I, I think that probably yeah. the people in the territory themselves were confused um, over over the situation um, because it it kind of depended. So, like if you look at 1883, it depended on where you lived and what type of school district you were in. The whether or not women could could participate, and then sometimes some scholars how they interpret whether women had the right to vote um, 
differs too? Does showing up for a meeting and expressing an opinion on textbooks, even if you can't vote for superintendent of um, or the county superintendent of of, of schools, mm -hmm. and so it. It, it does vary, okay. um, but the 1887 law expanded the rights, and then there was a further expansion, of course, with, with statehood. And I should probably point out that perhaps more important than um, women having the right to vote is that women, and here again, there, there's some variation depending on the time and where, where we're at, but in North Dakota, for example, um, women could run for um, county superintendent of public schools. Actually, I should say in Dakota Territory, that was mm -hmm. the case, that they could run for um, the position and they could be elected. And that certainly laid, laid a foundation, too, because the first, the first woman to win statewide election in the United States was Eliz or was Laura um, Kelly Eisenhuth from mm -hmm. North Dakota, and she became the first secretary or um, superintendent of public instruction in a state. And actually, then the following year, another woman in North Dakota and a woman in Wyoming won. So um, the Northern Great Plains was really kind of at the forefront of you know this kind of electoral politics for women too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad you brought up the the woman winning in Wyoming the superintendent of public instruction, because I think although Wyoming women had full suffrage rights from the beginning, they, like the rest of the Northern Plains states, that's where they got a lot of their, um, took a lot of their political activity and office in running for these jobs in education. I would say that Wyoming fits the pattern, you know, with the exception that they already had the right to vote, but I think they, mm -hmm. in terms of the way they participated in politics and elections, I think they poured a lot of their energy into the education issues. Right. Yeah, it's interesting that Wyoming and North Dakota still have an elected superintendent of public instruction at the state level, and today they're both women. Both the, both those mm -hmm. offices are held by women today. So, th so they got a strong start from the very beginning. Yeah. I was wondering if you could go through, there's some interesting opposition, not only out of prohibition, but also... Uh, railroads was brought up as kind of a uh, in North Dakota as one of the reasons why North Dakota didn't get it passed. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that. Was it just kind of a business interest? That well, was there again, it was Alexander um, Mackenzie yeah. and Boss Mackenzie, okay. as he's sometimes <laughs> sometimes known yeah. um, in 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 North Dakota. And you know, that's one of the things that I think is the strength of Barb Handy Marcello's piece. Mm -hmm. is that she really teases that out because there is a political calculation that McKinsey is making to continue particularly German-Russian support and in North Dakota by the early 20th century. The vast majority of, of Germans in the state are German-Russians, mm -hmm. but ensuring that electoral support in the state legislature so that the legislature will continue to look favorably on the Northern Pacific Railroad. And, um, it, you know, he doesn't have to he doesn't have to support woman suffrage, um, but he can use other means to ensure that German Russians are going to kind of stay politically engaged in what's good for the Northern Pacific Railroad mm -hmm. um, by 
by kind of leaving open that possibility that there could be a resubmission bill, because again, North Dakota was already dry. So if woman suffrage isn't a reality, then there's a possibility um, that that the state could um, repeal prohibition, which I would argue that that would have been unlikely even without woman suffrage, just because of strong support in other mm-hmm. um, with other demographic groups that opposed um, alcohol. Okay. And then Paula Nelson's chapter here on uh, women who opposed it, uh, South anti-suffrage women in South Dakota and the suffrage campaign. Can you, can you speak to that issue? What different roles about, um, or different views about separate spheres as the chapter title says? So this is, this isn't anything new. I mean, there had always been opposition to, expanding the rights of, of um, or voting rights to women. And interestingly, it often comes from more affluent women who are concerned with their position in society. Mm. And so there was an organized opposition to woman suffrage from women. And I think it would be, you know, it would be kind of odd if there was somehow this notion that all women, of course, would support mm-hmm. women's suffrage. Mm-hmm. Um, clearly not, you know, and they have different reasons for not supporting women's suffrage, just as all women did not support prohibition, even though it was something that was closely identified with um, women, and women were certainly at the forefront of the temperance prohibition movement, um, but not all women did did support it. And so there were always women who vocally opposed, um, often educated women who were opposed to women's suffrage. And often, again, they were more affluent, they were more affluent women. Okay. Well, and one of the things that Paula Nelson um, tries to bring out, and she does talk about how particularly in the, in the teens when um, an opposition society kind of took off that you did have um, more affluent women touring the Northern Plains, just like the pro-suffragists. But Paula, one of the things Paula Nelson tries to bring out in her article is that she felt that a lot of just everyday women out on farms working wanted, you know, they saw political parties and the way they operated as sort of a threat to women's public service and their nonpartisan mm-hmm. nature and that they wanted to somehow preserve um, a, a sort of uh, women's reform efforts, you know, so that they could influence all parties, both both main parties, any third parties coming up that that women thought some women, at least in in South Dakota, her area of study, wanted to protect that nonpartisan nature of women's public activity, that they weren't just, yeah. oh, we want to stay home and not do any work, but, you know, I mean, not, you know, that they would want to be active and do public service, but they didn't want to be limited by party. Okay. So to keep a kind of a nonpartisan sheen on it, they wanted to to um, exactly that. they thought yeah. they could influence you know all issues mm-hmm. um, and in the public and that that is a way they did have influence that many women believed that that would they could work together across party lines and help to get uh, legislation passed that they wanted through those activities and I think Paula really 
thought that that is a kind of new perspective or a yeah. perspective that has not been brought out before. Right. And it should maybe be noted that a lot of these suffragists and the antis ran in the same social circles. <laughs> so, I mean, they knew each other. They might belong to some of the same other clubs, particularly in cities, you know, right. so like Sioux Falls, for example. Right. Well, very good. And and then, Molly, your piece here on, um, yeah, 1890, the 1890 uh, vote on women's suffrage and Indian suffrage, um, that revealed some interesting dynamics as well going on. Can you briefly just speak to what you're saying in there about citizenship? And uh, and I think as far as the, the understanding of what a citizen is, uh, is a very, has had a uh, trip, you know, to make it where it, how we understand it today. When the Constitution was first written and so forth, there's really no definition of citizenship or what a citizen is, and so we we're still kind of working that out. And and that's kind of a play in your article as well. My piece looked at the votes in 1890, so it was the first post-statehood mm -hmm. uh, election in South Dakota, and the Constitution of South Dakota actually mandated that the state vote on women's suffrage. That was a sort of partial victory for suffragists right. at the state constitutional conventions. And so uh, there was a strong campaign in 1890, um, a push for suffrage um, in that election. Uh, as the first legislature met, another issue came up, and it seems that some in the legislature were were thinking about the indigenous population of the state and thinking they're going to be voting soon. And our constitution, the state constitution of South Dakota, didn't say anything on um, native voting. North Dakota's had put in a clause saying that uh, um, a native man who separated themselves from uh, his, his nation or tribe could vote after two years. Hmm. South Dakota's constitution didn't say anything or didn't have a provision, and I think many in the legislature thought, well, we need to add something, and mm -hmm. so they passed a, uh, the House passed a bill that would restrict Native voting. Mm -hmm. And so both of these uh, bills are, were were voted on in the um, in that election, and part of what was going on there is you had two. It, it, this sometimes can be confusing, but you had two Dawes uh, influencing the thought of the legislature and the people in South Dakota. The one, of course, is the I think better known one, the Dawes Act of 1887, which mm -hmm. was going to allot uh, oh, land. Right to individual natives and break up uh, smaller or break up reservations. Mm -hmm. The other is the Dawes Sioux Act of 1889, which uh, right as South Dakota's um, achieving statehood breaks up the Great Sioux Reservation into smaller reservations. And so legislators thought, well, when indigenous men get those allotments, they're going to be citizens and they're going to be able to vote. Mm -hmm. And maybe we need to restrict that voting. And so um, one of the arguments that was made, uh, women themselves said, we are landowners. 
and many of their supporters said women could homestead. Women had a lot of land. Um, right. John Pickler thought that, you know, something like, you know, one-fifth of the state was owned by women. And right. he said they should win the vote based on their property ownership. And so you see this influencing their sure. ideas about Native men holding property mm-hmm. voting, right? And so the idea was, you're, you know, if, if you own property, you should be able to vote. And women used that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, on the eve of this uh, election, women would argue that maybe they needed to vote to counter some of that indigenous vote. Well, what happened um, in the end was that uh, the woman suffrage amendment was not passed, and neither was the restriction on indigenous suffrage passed. So both failed, meaning that to suffragists, particularly national suffragists, uh, it appeared that the men in South Dakota supported Native men suffered or Native men voting without supporting women voters. So this right. caused quite a stir, and then and this is part of the anger of the national suffragists, like Anthony and Stanton, were just right. furious because they felt that you know educated women were denigrated with this vote. Yeah, um, and you get some quite vitriolic you know press coverage of this. Neither group in ended up voting, right? It, it, there were other ways to um, exclude the indigenous vote, and women had to wait, you know, several decades longer to, to actually win the vote. Right. But it's quite complicated and right. quite fascinating, because what you see here is the Reconstruction Amendments, uh-huh. the Civil War, the rise of Jim Crow in the South. You see that South Dakota, at least, and the Northern Plains, I would argue, are a part of these debates. And so you sure. see... You know, sometimes people think, oh, it's way out there and they're isolated. But you see people, you know, engaging in debates about, as you said, citizenship, who mm-hmm. should vote, what, you know, what qualities do you have to have to vote. And, of course, at the time, South Dakota was one of, um, you know, many states that allowed immigrant non-citizens to vote. Right. <laughs> so it was, you know, you see the the link there between Your some of the papers. anti-immigrant sentiment in the um, in the national movement and national suffragists thought, okay, if we if we allow indigenous men to vote, they're probably going to vote like um, they assumed immigrant men would be against mm-hmm. uh, women's suffrage. So mm-hmm. they didn't want to see a body of a new body of men being allowed to vote with without women voting yeah. as well. So it's really quite complicated and fascinating how that all played out. And I did not anticipate that that was going to be my story <laughs> when I started right. out that research right. because I started out, I mean, there were some very awkward um, ballot wording uh-huh. that suffragists also did not like. It, it sort of, I don't know if you can get your mind around this, but the instructions were... You know, if you, um, all electors desiring to vote in favor of striking out the word male must erase the word no. Uh. All all electors desiring to vote against striking out the word male must strike out the word yes. So how you mark the ballot was very counterintuitive, and Mm. there had been some theories about, you know, whether that was intentional or not. And Uh so I was trying to investigate that and discover this whole story uh, this whole other story about okay. these two pieces of legislation. 
that just opened up a whole cultural world right. um, on the Northern Plains. Right. Well, Molly, uh, Lori, this is, uh, you know, one of the themes of the podcast is this kind of historical process and uh, asking a question and refining your question and then going to where the sources mm-hmm. are that, that lead to your answer. And sometimes the answers can be, like just like you said, Molly, quite surprising and, and unexpected. So that, that's a, a really good point. And certainly this, this whole book kind of uh, illuminates the complexity of an issue that today we think uh, should be pretty black and white, but it's anything but black and white. Well, I right, we're still talking about voting rights, aren't we? We're oh still, yes. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's every you know election, every you know, it's it's you know who who should vote, what should the restrictions be, mm-hmm. um, you know, all of those things. I think, yeah, I think I think woman suffrage in general, all of the work that has been, you know, of course, equality at the ballot box is just one volume that can't, has come out in the last few years because mm-hmm. of the the hundredth anniversary of the 19th amendment. And so I think it's kind of um, played a role here in how we talk about voting today. Um, Just this whole resurgence of scholarship on, on uh, women's suffrage. And of course, Lori and I were really excited that the press was doing such a, a wonderful job promoting the anniversary with its several, several books on, woman suffrage. Right. There's there's several books, and uh, Her Vote, Her Voice uh, continues its work in a lot of ways to raise awareness about it. Mamie Shields Pyle was just inducted into the South Dakota Hall of Fame a couple weeks ago. That was very exciting to see her finally join that uh, elite group of South Dakotans. And so... Right. Yeah. And just for, just for listeners who may not know who Mamie Shields Pyle is, she was the leader for the last decade of the women's suffrage movement in the state of South Dakota and really, you know, was behind the ni- the victory in 1918 and the other campaigns in 14 and 16 and really since about 1910. And so she was a very strong force for, mm-hmm. for a decade. Mm-hmm. And her daughter goes on to serve in the legislature and be exactly. Secretary of State and elected to be a senator from South Dakota. Yeah. So... Well, uh, Lori, Molly, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with History 605 today. I really appreciate it. Well, you're welcome. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, Ben. Yep. Ben it's been a, a nice chat and delightful. Thanks. Good. Thanks. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history.